2: This archival episode of Design Matters was recorded in December 2016. Support for Design Matters comes from Adobe Portfolio. With Portfolio, which comes free with any Adobe Creative Cloud plan, you can quickly and simply build a website to showcase your creative work so you can get back to doing what you do best. Start today at myportfolio.com slash designmatters. Proceeds from Adobe Portfolio support of this podcast will go into a student scholarship for the School of Visual Arts Master's in Branding program. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 11 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. This episode of Design Matters is part of a series featuring new voices in design, and Debbie Millman talks with Adam J. Kurtz about designing for psychological health. You know, I'm not
3: gonna change your life, I'm just gonna share with you the tools that are helping me. Here's Debbie Millman.
0: Adam J. Kurtz calls himself an artist. He says he does that because nobody has time for his multi-hyphenate reality. Well, we've got time, and today on the podcast, we're going to explore how this designer, author, illustrator, creative director, small press brand got to be who he so delightfully is. Adam has designed many fun and witty products for Urban Outfitters and the Strand Bookstore, among other retailers, and he's also done work for Pepsi, Adobe, and the New York Times. He's written two books, the second of which just came out and is titled, Pick Me Up. Adam, welcome to Design Matters.
3: Thank you so much for having me here.
0: You grew up in Toronto and were always considered a creative child, which you stated is code for everyone always bought you art supplies for your birthday. What kind of art did you make when you were little?
3: I was just one of those people that was sort of creating their own reality, which is code for I was sort of like an awkward gay loser, but didn't know what that was yet. And so I was. (laughs) You you and me both. (laughs) Right. That was that was it. I think everyone but me knew. So my bedroom would have monthly themes where I would hang clouds from like. We called it boondoggle, that plastic craft string. I don't know how to better explain that. <laughs> we'll have
1: that. to run
0: over to Michael's and check.
3: Yes, basically my upbringing was like a nonstop Michael's.
0: I read that you moved around quite a lot when you were growing up and didn't have a lot of friends. Why did you move so much?
3: Truthfully, it was just one big move from Canada to the U.S. that my family did. But I went to a boarding school. And so at the time that my family was moving, I was going to a school... I don't want to say middle of nowhere, but but kind of. And so I felt uprooted in that way. Um, and then, you know, got out of school and it was like, oh, God, we're in America now. Like, I got to start from scratch. And in a lot of ways, I think that was a good thing. <laughs> Why so? It's hard when people know you for a long time, because no matter who you become, they'll always see you as one thing. So the opportunity to sort of enter my teens without all that sort of grade school, elementary school stuff was really wonderful. I like could sort of reinvent myself even that early on as a teen you taught yourself basic coding and built fan sites
0: I understand so what kind of fan sites who are you a fan of
3: I built my first fan site for Pokemon so that says a lot about who I am and that website is still online and where can we find it I I will never tell you I will die before I give out the URL but it is uh it's still there. I deleted the index page. But every so often, I like to go back and just remember where I was and where I am now. Um, Are you happy with the distance you've come? You know what? That sort of pixel art thing is back again. So I need to sort of grab Emma's Paint and get right back to it.
0: You use the name Adam J. Kurtz, and I believe you've used that name since grade school. What made you decide to use your middle initial as part of your moniker?
3: I think I've just been pretentious for my entire life. (laughs) What does the J stand for? It stands for Jason. And uh, I've. No, I think if you were pretentious, it would be A period Jason Kurtz. That's pretentious. There's still time to (laughs)
0: rebrand. I'm young yet. (laughs) And now, for the most part, you go by Adam JK. Tell us a story about the origination of that moniker.
3: Adam JK was just a username on message boards and MySpace, sort of that early pick an internet identity thing. And people started calling me Adam J.K. and then Adam Just Kidding. And I hated it at first. Yeah, I do not like Just Kidding. Eventually, it grew to be a very sort of accurate and adorable mnemonic device for what I do and who I am. Yeah, Adam J.K. has stuck. And so now that's my legal entity and uh, the name of my small press, my brand. You went to University of Maryland, Baltimore County.
0: What made you decide to go there?
3: Well, I was out of boarding school. I was in Baltimore, and I didn't know what to do or where to go. I went to community college for a year at 16, and an advisor there said, hey, there's a state school that has a design program. At the time, I had never heard of MICA. I, I lived two blocks from, you know, the Maryland Institute College of Art. I could have gone there, and I just didn't know that it existed. Wow. So a very serendipitous mistake that, that actually led me to a small school where I had four or five campus jobs, and just gained so much confidence and so much experience. I really couldn't be who I am now without that. So kind of grateful for that happy mistake.
0: And you knew even then that you wanted to be a graphic
3: designer. I think graphic design is the only thing I ever felt close to or passionate to. Just being able to make something out of nothing has always been such an important thing. And certainly at that point in my life, it was like, this is the only thing I care about. This is my way to sort of connect with the world. So. Maybe I'll be a lawyer later, but for now, this is it.
0: You stated that you think the majority of your education actually came from your time at Common Vision. And is Common Vision an
3: on-campus job that you had? Common Vision is um, a student-led design and print center at UMBC. And so we would do branding packages for on-campus events, for administrative departments, uh, we would also just run your seven-cent black-and-white copies for you. And in my time there, I learned a lot about how to take shit off the screen and make it real, and how to format files for print, and how to stretch that black-and-white print out. So I got really good at making a lot out of very little. And so I think also aesthetically my work became simpler because I was making just a ton of shit for like $3 at a time. So use of color out the window, a lot of colored paper, and just a lot of sort of simple, simple line art, simple graphics.
0: After you graduated, you stayed in Baltimore for a number of years. But I read that when you were a student, you would come to New York City for weekends to go to parties. And it felt to you like the only place
3: to be. Why didn't you move to New York right away? I came to New York, you know, like 1920 to drink too much and like hang out with people who are Some of them are still doing that. It's been nine years. Um, But I think I got it all out of my system. And then I was like, okay, I did that thing. Now let's get real. Um, And so when I eventually did move to New York, probably four or five years after that time in my life, I was sort of ready to accomplish something. And I didn't know what yet. But I knew that it wasn't just like drinking and smoking. Um, although those two things do help sometimes. You had a
0: number of day jobs in Baltimore, and I want to just talk about them briefly. I believe your first job out of college was as a studio assistant at the media production company Hoopla. Yeah. And you also worked at Ads First as a graphic designer. At that point in your life, what were you imagining your career path to be?
3: I haven't imagined a career path until probably last year. So at the time that I was leaving school, it was just like, what the hell do I do next? And so both of those jobs actually sort of just sprung up when I needed them by mistake.
0: You live in Brooklyn now, and when you first got here, you worked at the ad agency Barton Graff as a studio designer, and then at BuzzFeed as a social web artist. And I don't know what a social web artist actually is.
3: Those two jobs were honestly so different. Barton F. Graff is an award-winning, you know, mid-size ad agency founded by advertising legends who I had never heard of and didn't know anything about before getting there. How did you get the job? A friend of a friend gave me an email address, and I had been unemployed for a few months at that point. I uh, was living off of a parody t-shirt, then online sales of that was paying Williamsburg rent, so that the well. The parody
0: t-shirt, was that the Joy Division t-shirt? The Joy Division Which t-shirt. Which is so genius. Can you just explain it for our listeners that might not know, but it is among my favorite t-shirt designs ever.
3: I took Joy Division's Unknown Pleasures artwork, and I just changed the type to read what is this? I've seen it on Tumblr. That's it. That's the whole thing. It <laughs> paid my rent for months. It's so good. It was never even meant to print. It was, you know, essentially a meme that, that caught on overnight. And I woke up and I was like, well, guess we're doing this.
0: Well, there's so there's so much of your work is things that people think, but just don't have the guts to say in the best possible way, not in a Trumpian way. Oh, wait, you didn't tell me what you were doing at BuzzFeed. You, said you just told me about Barton.
3: Yes. At a certain point with Barton F. Graff, my book was coming out and it was like, I can't do 16 hour advertising days. And BuzzFeed was hiring for something they called a social web artist, which I don't think they knew what it was. So it was perfect because they didn't know what they needed and I didn't know what I was. And I was like, all right, let's joke around and make gifs all day and sort of create memes in response to breaking news. And uh, it was a lot of fun. I was at BuzzFeed for. Well, it depends if you're asking me colloquially or if it's LinkedIn. So the answer varies from eight months to uh, just over a year. I was going
0: to say, I think I saw a year and a month. (laughs) Yeah, it's a lie.
3: Just a straight up lie. Good to know. Uh, And
0: are you now working entirely for yourself?
3: I'm working entirely for myself. It's been a year and a half now, which if I really stop to think about it is I'm trying not to use the word insane anymore in 2017, but yeah, still can't believe it. And I'm busy. I'm really busy. Yes, you are. We're going to talk a lot about that. But
0: was it a difficult decision at the time to just take the leap into your own work?
3: Everything about my career trajectory is a mistake. Uh, My rough draft for Pick Me Up was due the next month. And I had requested some book leave. And we were sort of hemming and hawing about the duration of that. And it was like this sort of mutual, well, you're too busy to be here. And I was like, I am too busy to be here, aren't I? Up until that point, I don't think I was able yet. to to work full-time for myself. And so people had been suggesting it. I knew financially it wasn't there. But at that point, it was this wake-up call of like, oh, yeah, like, I'm here. This is the sign. And so quit that job, got my rough draft wrapped up, and uh, I've just been sort of, like, hurtling since then. I mean, if I really sit down and think about it, it's like that feels like yesterday.
0: Well, let's go back in time a little bit and talk about the trajectory of your self-generated projects that led you to being able to do your own work all the time. Your first solo project, or one of your first solo projects was your Daily Planner Unsolicited Advice, which you started in 2012. It's a pocket-sized weekly planner with fill-in resources and activities. There are random lined pages, grid pages, drawing pages, compliments, impending holiday warnings. What made you decide to do this back in 2012?
3: It was probably November 2011, and the holidays were coming, and I was just flat broke. I mean, beyond broke. And uh, I get really excited about giving gifts. I think that has become evident in my my career, but at the time I was like, I don't have money, what do I do? And I always think of this, it's straight out of Harry Potter, so bear with me, but there's this moment when there are these like tendril plants coming, and the only way to defeat them is with fire, and Hermione Granger is like, oh God, I don't have a match. And her friend Ron screamed, or I believe it's bellows, like, are you a witch or not? Like, do you not have magical powers? I was like, oh, yeah, I'm a graphic designer, and I work at a print shop where I can steal paper. Why do I not just make something? Uh, And that's what happened. You know, I had 10 extras. A post on Tumblr went sort of viral, and I sold 250 that year.
0: I know that you produced 41st, I guess those were your gifts, right? Yeah. And then you put the extra copies up for sale on your blog, and they sold in days. Then you printed another 100, and they disappeared, and then another 100. And after that, you declared you got tired. What then made you decide to go to Kickstarter the next year for this?
3: I honestly cannot remember what it was. I will say, you know, I I have this sort of close relationship with Kickstarter. I moved to New York because the old friend who I moved to New York with was poached from an advertising job by Kickstarter. So he was their first full-time designer, um, I guess, five years ago. And just being around someone who was constantly just, like, fucking talking about Kickstarter, I was like, all right, enough. Like, I'll do it. And so I think I was encouraged just to try it out. But it was that same thing of, like, well you know, I could go out and party or I could just stay home uh, in my tiny bedroom with a computer in the corner. And I I picked that one. In 2013, you had
0: 382 backers. You raised $7,598 of your $1,600 goal. Well done. 2014, you changed the title to just unsolicited advice. You had 451 backers and you raised $13,904 of a $2,400 goal. 2015, 429 backers, you raised $12,411 of a $3,000 goal. So slightly less money, slightly bigger goal. Probably not the best idea, but you still did okay. 2016, unsolicited advice, 1,075 backers, you raised $42,362 of your $2,600 goal. And this year, 1,155 backers, you raised $47,846 of a $2,600 goal. Congratulations. You have won the Kickstarter prize of the
3: year. Thank you. I wanted to die when that happened. <laughs> Why? No one tells you this. I think that the number and that sticker show, I mean, I should, Preface this by saying I am so proud and grateful um, that people back this every year and tell their friends. But $47,000 and 3,000 copies of a book that that I ship out of my apartment that's a lot of work, but it's amazing.
0: It's amazing. This is proof of what democratized design is about. It's amazing.
3: I just got through it, actually. You're right. If we talked about this next month, I'd probably be a lot more peppy. I'm sort of in the thing. And now
0: you can buy your friends real presents.
3: That has been the coolest part (laughs) is after that first year buying real presents and donating a couple thousand dollars to charity every year, too, just because I've never had money that I could donate. This is like very, very new. But I, I'm really grateful. And Congratulations. It does it's get better It's really well-deserved. Thank you.
0: You seem to be really interested in actual paper, and I guess this goes back to your printing company, to your Xerox printing company days, and in holding things, and have said that when people say print is dead, this is my favorite quote I've heard about print being dead.
3: I already don't remember this, so okay, I hope so it's good. It's
0: great. You said, um, when people say print is dead, you think they mean sales are down. <laughs>
3: I would say that. That's that's not bad. Um, but I think that's true. People say print is dead, and we know that they're talking about traditional news media. And that's just because that breaking news information is distributed more effectively through digital channels. But I don't think print is dead at all. And actually, journals are a crazy trend and we know adult coloring books are this trend and there's a huge need for tactile paper goods stationery is huge i mean i walked past a paper source on the way here there's like a department store for paper things so we know print's not dead it's just print capital p print is changing and that's what people are really talking about
0: You've said that design is so much about organizing other people's words and images in useful structures, and eventually you decided that you wanted to make work that used your own voice. How would you describe that voice, and how do you decide what types of self-generated projects to pursue?
3: You know, I was very much the graphic design friend, but someone said, Adam, you never make anything that's not about something. And I was like, huh. And, uh, and that has still stuck with me. And so I was like, I'm going to make something that just exists because it does. and It doesn't need to. And it doesn't necessarily say anything. And so I started sort of emoting outwardly through design. I mean, these were sort of like proto design memes. I think now it's like day one of art school is fire up Photoshop and make something sort of snarky or sad for your Tumblr. But at the time, I think I was one of a few people on, on Tumblr and on social media who were like, here's how I feel. But Let me show you. I think you give
0: people hope that they can feel ashamed about themselves and still be an okay human being.
3: Yeah, we can all feel intense, crushing shame about ourselves. (laughs) Spoiler alert, we already do, so might as well keep doing it.
0: You've done some collaborative work with a number of retailers, and you partnered with Fish's Eddie to create what you described as a weird little collection of dishware pieces that are all beautiful, but a little bit off just like you'd expect from us both. Can you describe what you've created together?
3: Fishazetti and I have a collection of mismatched dishware that we call Mixed Feelings. And from the very beginning, our sense of humor, our outlook was just a perfect match. I should just say, we're both like kooky, like East Coast Jews. Like when Julie Gaines and I met, it was just like, it's on. Within within 10 minutes, uh, we knew we were going to work together and we knew it was going to be sort of unhinged. And did they just reach out to you? Did you pitch them? Oh, <laughs> uh, I'm obsessed with Eddy. I'm obsessed with a lot of things. That's a thing about me. But their main designer ordered some pins from my online shop, delivered to work as as you do. And I, I mean, I just lost it. I really zero chill. I wrote a note telling them how much I love Eddy and my dream was to fall in love and bring my future. Boyfriend, and we would stock our kitchen with fishetti stuff. and oh my God, Abby, I don't know you, but this just happened six months ago. and here's an extra pin and I was invited in and and from there it was just we knew I think it was we knew instantly. I'm still pinching myself when I walk past that that window display, I'm just like, holy shit, I think I made it like i I did something in. New York City. (laughs) It's a great story. I just recently got
0: a plaque for one of my bathrooms that says um, both. (laughs) As opposed to women or men, both. I
3: was just looking at those. uh, I was there three days ago. (laughs) Of course you were. Yeah, I'll never stay away.
0: You've also designed postcards, a series of pins, as you just mentioned, a number of T-shirts, stickers, and even a balloon. And your balloon is one of my favorites. It's emblazoned with the message, sorry, I'm such an asshole. What motivated that design? Was there a prototype that you brought to a party?
3: Sorry, I'm such an asshole was this sort of sentiment that I couldn't let go of. I always tell this joke in my lectures. So if you're listening to this, don't come to any of my lectures. But I'm not the kind of person that dumps someone else. I'm usually the one who gets dumped. And, you know, I'm I'm a mess. I get it. But I had to break up with someone else. You know, it was justified, but I felt really guilty about it. And so in the first zine I ever made, I put little alphabet stickers on a heart balloon, a Mylar heart-shaped balloon, and photographed it. And I just, like, couldn't let go of that image. It was so sort of, like, really real but funny. And it was just kicking around my head for a few months. And finally, I was like, there's got to be a way to make this. And so I googled custom balloons. And number one result is the guy I still print with. And we're friends. And, uh, Like a lot of my other work, the sorry I'm such an asshole balloons just felt like something that needed to exist. It was something I needed uh, in order to emote effectively. It was like a a tool for myself and I didn't expect them to, to continue selling.
0: And you're still selling them now in your gift shop. Yeah. It's your Adam JK gift shop, and it's all about exploring what a gift really is. And you ask the question, why do we buy small trinkets to begin with? And I'd love to
3: know what your answer to that question is. Why do you like to buy small trinkets? We buy gifts because they say something that we can't, because they remind us of of a feeling or a person or a moment in time we buy gifts as a reminder that things will be okay. You know, we buy trivial shit constantly. And uh, if even for 30 seconds you really strongly like something, I think that justifies it. Um, and that's sort of how I've come to terms with a lot of lowbrow shit that, that's out <laughs> there, uh, some of which I have started producing myself, because it's okay to just like stuff. Uh, and I think that's why we give gifts is because of the emotional connection that we feel. And when we give something that we've imbued with an emotional value, we turn a $5 keychain into a timeless keepsake. What are lapel pins? People have pins that are 50 years old. I mean, they're nothing. And that's what's beautiful about them is they become worth as much as you want them to be. You know, when your mom shows you her pin collection from the 80s, that's a big moment. And I I still remember my mom's cool pins. So I'm trying to make those for, for future moms and dads.
0: You did an interview with the great illustrator, Lisa Congdon, and you said this about your work. I am hopeful and sad at the same time. I am sappy as fuck. I am afraid of myself. I am proud of some things that other people aren't proud of. Why are you afraid of yourself?
3: Being afraid of myself comes from the same place as my general terror as a designer. And I think we can all sort of relate to this idea that when you have the tools to create and destroy... That's unlimited potential and unlimited power. And so all of a sudden there's this fear of not only just, oh, God, what if I don't do a good job or if I fuck it up? But like, oh, God, like I could end my career in one tweet. I could end my life in one action. And, you know, that's a little dark. But the unlimited potential that we all have as people but also as connected people and also as designers with resources, that's scary. Um, And I I have a pencil about it, of course. It says, I am a tool or a weapon and completely free – And that is literally terrifying. And that came from this moment when I was like, oh God, I might have a career doing the things that I know how to do. Oh God, I just figured that out now. What if I die and I don't get to do it? And I had this huge freak out moment of, wow, I'm worth something. Oh God, that means I'm worth protecting. Was that the
0: freak cat that you had during that Christmas vacation?
3: Yes. So, wow, so you really did the thing. <laughs>
0: this is. I'm impressed. Well, a, a number of things happened to you all at once. And This was a few winters ago. And tell me if I've gotten this correct. You suddenly realized that you were an artist. Artist in quotes. It finally hit you that your grandmother was going to die. You fell really hard in love. And you found yourself asking this question. Did you know that hard work can pay off and love is real and that life ends. And you revealed that these were new ideas for you. It was during Christmas, you were alone, and you stated that you freaked the fuck out. So what happened? What kind of freak out occurred?
3: For those of you listening at home, I'm like tearing up a little bit. I, I wasn't, I should have known that this was coming. Um, yeah, I think I I just suddenly realized that that things matter and that I had potential and that I wanted to be alive for the future. I think when you're a young person, there's this sort of I'm going to live forever thing. Yes, um, but that the flip, fades. The flip side of the I'm going to live forever is that like, well, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. So I'm not necessarily even thinking towards a future. It's sort of both. It's not I want to die. It's just that like I don't know what will be. So there's this emptiness. And all of a sudden it hit me that like, Oh God, I met this man that I want to have a future with, and Oh God, this woman who is so warm, who I love, who loved souvenirs and trinkets and hospital gift shops. She's dying, and I'm seeing her die right now. Also, I bought some laced weed by mistake from a guy (laughs) at the. uh, the, This is at the the Grand Street L train. Uh, It was like a friend of a friend of so sketchy. Definitely was laced. I don't know with what. Uh, And it just sent me spiraling. And this was also the time of that first Kickstarter project when I first was like, oh, people believe in me with dollars. Um, And so all these things really swirled together. And I had the sort of like classic movie trope. I just came here from the movies, and this happens in the movie where Emma Stone gets overwhelmed by L.A. and she has to go home. So I got overwhelmed by New York, and I went home for a couple weeks just to be with my, my sick grandmother, to be with my family, and to sort of think about what matters to me. And while I was home, I got an email from my editor at Penguin. Out of nowhere, I was home sort of wondering if New York was for me and what life is, and I got an email that said, hey, we think you have a book here. Let's meet. I mean, it sort of forced me out of my funk.
0: And also I believe that Milan Kundera's book helped a little bit, The Unbearable Lightness of Being.
3: Yes, that that was a sort of a great move by my my now fiancé, that same man, um, he was like, let's have a book club. Of course, it's the only book we book clubbed, but, uh, <laughs> the right book at the right time to help bring me back. God, I really, I met the right person at the right time. I didn't know that that can happen, but that was four years ago. So our four year anniversary was last week. Happy anniversary. Now Thank you're wearing
0: you. a wedding band. So you said fiance.
3: But... Yeah. So, you know that I like to worry about everything. We did the wedding bands as engagement rings. Not for me, but so he could freak out. I was like, <laughs> you're going to freak out, so do it now. And then when you're good again, let's go get married. So we'll take the rings off and put them right back on. Oh, that's but nice. I thought we would that's try it nice. out.
0: At the end of your freak out, you stated that winter ended. I'd finished reading a book, the Milan Candero book. You sobbed in your living room listening to Whitney Houston's I Didn't Know My Own Strength. Great choice.
3: It was a dance remix of that's
0: <laughs> <laughs> Send it to me, please. Oh, my God. Uh, you were offered your own book deal from this wonderful woman at Penguin. Um, you left your soul-sucking job. I'm not going to ask you which one because I don't want to make you have to reveal that publicly, although I'll ask you after the podcast is over.
3: I, I'm happy to share oh, that it please was, do. Okay. It was uh, my freelance job for an internet marketing firm, and uh, the specialty is cosmetic dentistry and surgery. So I would be the one coding before and after... Ooh. rhinoplasty, liposuction, cosmetic dentistry. So when we think of like sort of the tropes of like why advertising is a little bit terrible, that was what I was doing. And so that was before Barton F. Graf when we worked on really fun stuff for fun clients. This was like the shit that a designer is doing. You know, if you see it, someone's doing it. And for two years, that was me.
0: Well, I'm glad you were able to get out of that. And I understand you also ate bananas and quit coffee. You tried yoga. How did you move out of your sadness and grief, ultimately?
3: I don't know that I fully moved out of it. I think I maybe transformed it. Um, And I will say that yoga didn't stick, so (laughs) neither did no coffee. Uh, Bananas are still adorable. Well, I know you love yellow. I love yellow. There's a story there, too, of course. Um, Of course. Let's hear it. Well, actually, the reason that unsolicited advice is yellow, one page at a time is yellow, is because our school colors were black and yellow And we just had the most yellow cardstock that I could steal and no one would notice. I did not know that would define my career thus far. Fevery. Yeah, UMBC yellow. But sort of shifting that fear, you know, realizing that it's okay to embrace that terror, hold on to things that keep you grounded and honest, but also that, like, the show's got to go on, you know, don't make it easier for life when life's trying to push you down. It's like, You don't have to lie there and take it.
0: You also have said that everything you do is basically talking to yourself. And when you were first making art, this was your way of coping and communicating with the world. And I read that Vice declared that you blur the line between artist and therapist.
3: And I was wondering if you agree with that. You know, I I don't consider myself that thing. I'm definitely being open about my growth process and letting people in, but I'm not telling you that what is working for me will work for you. I never want to be that sort of top down advice giving, you know, I'm not going to change your life. I'm just going to share with you the tools that are helping me. And uh, I think people like me will find things that work for them in that. So it is a a delicate balance. And um, the back of pick me up actually says on the back cover, not a licensed therapist. And I thought that was really important for people to know that like, I'm Kind of just an idiot. I'm, I'm just talking about being an idiot, um, and I, I think that you're an idiot too.
0: <laughs> Faz Company recommended that you bring a trash bag of Zoloft when reading your books. So let's talk about your books. So, your editor at Penguin found your unsolicited advice Kickstarter. You met for coffee, you got a book deal. One page at a time came out in 2014, and it's since been printed in over 15 languages. Can you describe the book for our listeners that might not be aware of
3: the book? One Page at a Time is essentially a daily journal full of prompts, um, some serious, some completely not, that is intended to help you get through a year. And the idea is that, you know, day one, it might feel like the world is impossible, but when you finish this book, you've essentially written a book, and it is a thick book. So the hope is that you will create your own power And then have made this very powerful reminder of the year you had, the person that you are, and all that you can do.
0: You wrote about how you struggle with the idea of a creative person. And the subtitle of your book, A Daily Creative Companion, was not your idea and you were originally not sure about that. Subtitle. How do you feel about it now?
3: I'm still not sure about that subtitle. So is
0: it too um, instructive, or what, what don't you like about it?
3: Well, I should say I think it it's perfect. I think that people at Penguin, the sales team, my editor, they really knew how to shape what I do and the overwrought overthinking that I do and sort of create a digestible item. And so it's through their guidance that it's been successful, and, and I wouldn't change it. But I still feel like the word creative really scares a lot of people in the same way that artists does. It's the same way that graphic designers are afraid to share their work until they think it's perfect. The so word, why
0: does the word creative bother you? I know that you have an issue with it being a have-have-not thing. Is that really the foundation of it?
3: or That's really what it is, is. It's not that I have a problem with the word creative. It's that I'm afraid that other people will feel limited by that. And something that I hear from people a lot is, I wish I was creative. I'm not a creative person. And to me, being alive... Means you're a creative person. I think creativity is one of those basic human things that we all have elements of. And uh, I was just afraid of alienating anyone. I'm actually constantly afraid of alienating anyone, so that might speak to like a larger insecurity that I have. What do you think it's about? I did mention I'm Jewish, right? <laughs> yeah, that's where that's where it comes from. I'm okay. sort of worried about everything all the time.
0: You dedicated your book to your grandmother, who you stated taught you the following: one, never be afraid to ask; two have a little sugar, three, appreciate life surprises, and four, to document everything. Do you think your ability to document everything led to the original idea of creating your daily creative companion?
3: I think that's exactly where it came from, is unsolicited advice is basically a Jewish grandma nagging you for a year and encouraging you to document and plan and save and celebrate all those little things. You know, Bubby would stuff our birthday cards full of confetti. And she was always talking to everyone and taking photos. And she would ask embarrassing questions, like, at the movies, like, hey, can we get free tickets for next time? And we'd be like, what are you doing? And then she would come back with, like, 12 vouchers for free movies. And we were just like, oh. Ask
0: and you shall receive. (laughs) Sometimes
3: you just need to talk to a person and and you never know what will happen. And so I feel a lot of things that I cherish— really came from those lessons anecdotally from her.
0: Well, let's talk about your new book, Pick Me Up, a pep talk for now and later. You describe the book in the following way. It is something to cheer you up and it is a self-aware
3: cry for attention.
0: (laughs) What does that mean?
3: (laughs) Uh, I mean, Pick Me Up is sort of this great joke that I think a lot of my work has, is you can read it as a positive or negative. And so there's something for everyone. And especially with Pick Me Up, I wanted to create what is essentially a very blunt, self-care, mental health-aware journal. But I didn't want to call it the self-care mental health journal because then the people who could really benefit from it would either never give it a shot or be afraid to carry it around. And so Pick Me Up is a gift that someone older than you gives you and you're like, oh, great, quirky. And then you open it and you're like, ooh, okay, I'm going to save this for later. And so it it was meant to sort of sit on a shelf and not scream, I'm full of secrets, but then become a place to be full of secrets.
0: You've said that this book is what you wish you had when you were 14. Why is that?
3: Because I was a mess. Because, you know, that's a time, I think, that we're full of insecurity, and we just, there's so much jumbling around as an early teen, and also you don't trust anybody. And so there's no one to talk to about it. So the idea of using a paper journal, sure, if you don't need that push, but a book like Pick Me Up that encourages you to write and draw frankly about what's happening and then also forces you to keep confronting it over and over again as you open the book randomly, I think is really helpful. And I, I would have benefited from that. So how does the book help if you're a mess? I think the book helps by, first of all, forcing you to take it out, which a lot of us are burying feelings pretty deep, um, so forcing you to, to pull them out and put them on a page, but then also you have the ability to turn the page. So there is this cathartic action, and one-fourth of the book is actually just actions or thinking, and so you're not writing or drawing so much as performing these sort of like microtherapy things. That's what this is, is using tactile goods, tearing pages, putting things down, turning a page. These are all sort of unsubtle metaphors that I think are cheesy until they start to help. The last thing I want to ask
0: you about is some of the exercises in Pick Me Up. They are marvelous. You ask people to create an ultimate bucket list, wherein they have to fill out the list with dream activities, then put it out into the real world. You ask people to cross out negativity anytime you're on that page. You ask people to write their problems in pencil now, then erase them over time until... They are in the clear. If you have to recommend one or two exercises from the book that are the most life-inspiring, which would you choose?
3: I think my absolute favorite pages in the book are actually, they share a spread. Um, There's a page where you fill in rocks, you pile up your anxieties so that you can knock them down, and on the left side of the spread are a bunch of blank labels where you fill in labels that could be applied to you and then practice not doing that. And that's where you can apply all those those labels and, and things that we're called by life, by people around us, um, and even by medical diagnoses, those labels that terrify us, stare them down and then just don't use them.
0: Adam, you are just a, a life force. Thank you so much for creating such authentic, life-affirming work. And thank you for being on Design Matters
3: today. Thanks for having me here and for almost making me cry.
0: Anytime. To learn more about Adam J. Kurtz, just go to his website, adamjkurtz.com. This is the 11th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do
2: both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Support for Design Matters comes from Adobe Portfolio. With Portfolio, which comes free with any Adobe Creative Cloud plan, you can quickly and simply build a website to showcase your creative work so you can get back to doing what you do best. Start today at myportfolio.com slash designmatters. Proceeds from Adobe Portfolio support of this podcast will go into a student scholarship for the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance from Mark Dudlick. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this podcast in the iTunes store.
1: You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack.